Hey there, and thanks for joining us on Chicago Tonight Black Voices. I'm Brandis Friedman. On the show tonight, a new push by longtime homeowners in South Shore to fight gentrification. Hear from the Cook County Public Guardian on rising concerns over DCFS's care of youth awaiting placement. After sitting empty for nearly 35 years, we revisit a newly restored Remova Theater ahead of its first major concert this weekend. I was flabbergasted because I'd never seen anything like it in the history of cinema before. And how this 125-year-old silent film still says so much. And out of some of today's top stories, one person has been killed and another 22 people were shot after gunfire erupted near the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade today. Kansas City police say the shots were fired at the end of the parade and they detained two people who were armed. An estimated one million people were in downtown Kansas City celebrating their team's back-to-back -back NFL championship. Chicago Public Schools could be scrubbing its janitorial company, Aramark. The Board of Education is scheduled to vote next week on whether to replace the company that's been providing cleaning services to the district for the last decade. The district has faced repeated complaints of dirty schools and reports that principals and teachers were having to clean the schools themselves. And in late 2017 and early 2018, inspectors found rodent droppings and pet pest infestations. The union representing CPS janitors lauded the planned move. For more on that and the cost, please visit our website. And if you were trying to get a Lyft or Uber at O'Hare Airport today, you might have had some trouble. That's because rideshare drivers in Chicago and nine other cities held a day-long strike and rally. The group Justice for App Workers Coalition led the demonstration. Rideshare workers say they're protesting because of violence against drivers, a lack of protection from app deactivations, and a reduction in earnings. The coalition says it represents over 30,000 rideshare and delivery drivers in Illinois. Chicago museums have become a hotspot for labor organizing. In the latest attempt, workers at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago are launching an effort to join the ranks of unionized cultural workers. Staff released a letter citing staff burnout and turnover. They're represented by AFSME, which also represents employees at the Art Institute and the Field Museum. In a statement, the MCA says they are, quote, aware of the announced intention to form a union and they respect the rights of employees to organize. Debates, political ads, and polls galore. The 2024 election is in full swing, in case you haven't heard. And starting tomorrow, you can vote. Chicagoans will be able to vote at two downtown locations, the Super Site and the Chicago Board of Elections office. Early voting in all 50 wards begins on March 4th. You can visit our online voter guide for information and video of the candidates, plus a voter toolbox to help you learn when, where, and how you can vote. The Archdiocese of Chicago met Catholics across the city today to distribute ashes on this Ash Wednesday. Clergy and church staff met commuters at parks, CTA stops, Union Station, as well as O'Hare and Midway airports to apply ashes to their foreheads in the shape of a cross. Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of Lent. That's a 40-day period leading up to Easter. Up next, concerns over the state's handling of kids in its care right after this. Chicago Tonight, Black Voices, is made possible in part by Fifth Third Bank and by the support of these donors.
At Fit Third, we believe when diverse voices are heard and empowered, communities are made stronger, lives are made better, and the future holds greater promise for all. That's why we're proud to support Chicago Tonight Black Voices. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can drive change. The person who advocates in court for children who've been abused or neglected says the state's Department of Children and Family Services is not only failing to meet the needs of kids in its care, but that the situation is getting worse. Just recently, the crisis-plagued agency gained a new leader, and the Cook County Public Guardian says she has her work cut out for her. Joining us is Charles Goldberg, the Cook County Public Guardian. We should note we've also reached out to the new leader of DCFS to join us for a future conversation. Charles Goldberg, Goldberg thank you for joining us now. Thank you. First, give us a brief sense of the duty of the Cook County Public Guardian. What do you do? Yeah, our office represents some 7,000 children uh, in their abuse and neglect cases in juvenile court here in Cook County. Most of them are under the care of DCFS. Okay, so DCFS has been under a consent decree for years. Uh, why do you believe there's been so little progress in how the agency is managing children in its care? Yeah, DCFS has been, been under a consent decree for 32 years. 32 years ago, DCFS promised to have all the placements that all of its kids need, all of the services, high quality placements and services and so forth. And it, it, the, it keeps getting worse. Um, every year, DCFS's placement crisis shortage gets worse. Last year alone, there was more than a thousand times where DCFS's kids were placed in uh, offices, um, in emergency rooms, um, in locked psychiatric wards, in jails, because DCFS had no place for them. Children as young as four and as five years old. And we have stats going back several years, and it's getting worse and worse every year. More children involved, longer lengths of stay in these harmful placements, and the children keep getting younger and younger every year. Um, in a letter that your office wrote uh, to the court, um, you point to DCFS's own annual report about youth in care awaiting placement, uh, that the average age of children who've been held in a psychiatric hospital beyond medical necessity is down to 12 years old. Average length of stay is now 94 days. That was in 2023. Um, and that's a 20% increase over 2022. Um, as you mentioned, there are also concerns about children being placed out of state or sleeping in offices. What kind of impact does this have on children? Oh my God, it's devastating. So if you're stuck in a locked psychiatric hospital, you can't go to school. If you're there um, uh, for a few months, you could lose easily a semester of school, even a year of school. Um, you're locked indoors all, all, all day long. At some point, they start giving you vitamin D supplements because you're not exposed to the sun. Uh, you, you have very limited ability to meet, to have contact with your parents, um, friends, um, no extracurricular activities, no sports. And also you're seeing other kids going through psychiatric episodes all day long. You come in with one set of problematic behaviors, you leave with a whole host of new problematic behaviors. And above all, these are already traumatized kids. And they see other kids come in, have an acute psychiatric episode, um, be treated, and promptly leave when they're ready to be discharged after a couple of weeks. But their guardian, DCFS, never comes for them because there's no placement for them. It's really hard to think of a more effective way to convey to a child, you don't matter, than to keep that child locked up in a psych ward or in a jail or in an office for months and months because your guardian doesn't have anywhere for you. Well, and that said, you know, give us a sense. These children, you know, as you mentioned, they've got their own trauma, right? And so some of them, they are very complex cases and complex medical and mental health needs. I imagine that is probably part of what makes it difficult to find placement for them. 
Um, that's it for some of the kids. So, so as recently as a few years ago, we were talking, these kids that are mostly teenagers, and it's the group you're talking about, now we're talking about kids as young as four and five years old. I mean, it keeps getting younger and younger and kids with less complex issues. But even for the kids with the most complex issues, we know what these kids need. We have placements for them now. Actually, a lot of DCFS's placements, residential group, they actually have empty beds right now because they're not adequately staffed. They're required staffing ratios, as there should be, um, and these placements can't hire enough people. So there are empty beds in good placements that are inadequately staffed while we have kids living in jails and in locked psychiatric hospitals. Uh, Governor Pritzker spoke recently about some of the changes that have been made at DCFS uh, at a recent press conference. Here he is. Recent upgrades include creating nearly 70 new beds statewide in just this last year alone. And we've grown DCFS's staff to more than 3,400, the largest headcount and the lowest cases per investigator in more than a decade. So people are getting better care and more personalized care. And we're continuing to build on this progress so every vulnerable Illinois youth gets the support they need and deserve. Now, the state also says that DCFS is investing more money into facilities, $25 million last year, $30 million this year, uh, but that there is an acute behavioral health care crisis nationwide, uh, not just here in Chicago and Illinois. Is what DCFS and the state are doing, is this enough? Um, no, it's not. DCFS actually lost more than 500 placements eight and a half years ago. It was actually a conscious decision. DCFS made a conscious decision eight years ago to close down 500 residential and group home beds. And they promised that in return, they would expand therapeutic foster care, which is a great idea. The idea is you bring the services into a home-like setting, in a foster care type setting. But the problem is the community-based services don't exist. Um, so um, Governor Pritzker was just trumpeting 80 new placements. That's great. That's a great start. I applaud that. But they have hundreds and hundreds of more placements to go. Uh, the state is, and at that press conference, uh, it was for uh, Up House because the state is funding this transitional residential uh, facility for young women. It opened last month. It is supposed to provide educational programs, mentors, dorm-style living. Uh, that would be part of the center. And as you said, it created about 70 beds. The state's investing about $3 million uh, annually for room board program fees. But you've had... You had some concerns with this with this uh, facility, but you say they've been addressed. Tell us about those. Yeah, I did have some concerns. So DCFS opened this to great fanfare, big press conference. They announced that it was a whole year in the making. It's going to be the largest new residential placement in years and years and years, which is wonderful. But they never told our office about it. They didn't tell a lot of advocates and stakeholders about it. I was very surprised I learned about it for the first time from the press release. And so my staff decided to go online and do some research. And... They found um, online that there's a requirement for this placement that residents must attend church services once a week as a condition of receiving services. Um, and so I, I raised that in a filing with the court. And in a meeting with DCFS and also in representations to the court, DCFS um, has said that that's a different program, a program that no longer exists, that the website needs to be updated, that that's out of date. Um, I consider my concerns addressed. 
I'm going to monitor the situation, but it really goes to the need for transparency in working with your partners and with other advocates and with stakeholders. Um, DCFS has a new director at the helm, uh, Heidi Miller, who comes from juvenile justice. Uh, what are some of the big challenges that she's facing? Um, expanding placements, um, expanding staff. Um, we were told in court yesterday that in a month, DCFS is going to file a motion for yet another extension to get the investigator vacancy rate down to where it needs to be. Three years ago, they asked for a three-year, I mean, it's a 30-year-old consent decree. Three years, they asked for another three years. They announced last month that they're going to be asking for yet another extension. So that placements, services, community-based um, services and placements of all types. Um, how do you plan on working with DCFS uh, as a partner to, to help, you know, come up with solutions? Well, we met with Director Miller yesterday, and we met with her team. Um, and so I know Director Miller by her reputation. She has an excellent reputation as being an excellent manager, reform-minded, transparent-oriented. Um, so I, I'm very optimistic about her appointment. And we're going to be meeting regularly, and she also assured us that a, a big placement opening without stakeholder involvement will not be happening in the future. Okay. We'll look forward to, to seeing, obviously, <laughs> what happens further uh, with DCFS. Charles Goldberg, I'm sure you'll keep us posted. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Up next, Southside residents pushing back against rising housing costs. Stay with us. The years-long fight against gentrification in South Shore is far from over. There's a renewed push by longtime homeowners to fight rising costs sparked by the Obama Presidential Center. Now advocates are looking to the voting booth to expand protections. WTTW News reporter Heather Sharon joins us now with more on how a non-binding ballot question could do just that. Heather. So... Good to see you, first of all. <laughs> so an effort to expand gentrification protections to include South Shore is stalled, but advocates are not giving up. What are they trying to do now? Well, the coalition that has long been pushing for protections for people who live around the under-construction Obama Presidential Center say South Shore has become, quote, ground zero for Chicago's housing crisis. They're frustrated that a measure that would extend protections to those homeowners and renters has stalled in the city council. So they're hoping that if voters go to the polls on March 19th and vote yes on this non-binding question, that will give their push new momentum. So what exactly will vote be asked to weigh in on. So this measure targets Mayor Brandon Johnson and 7th Ward Alderman Greg Mitchell. They want voters to tell them that they support protections for renters from evictions, help for longtime homeowners fixing their house, and relief from sky-high property taxes. Now, we've said this measure does not have the force of law, so this won't mean anything will immediately go into effect. But this is a way to tell the mayor and the alderman, hey, you better get on board or you could suffer at the ballot box when you're up for re-election next time. And where does Alderman Greg Mitchell stand on this issue? Well, I asked him today where he stood on this ballot measure. Would he vote for it? And he said he didn't even know it was on the March 19th ballot. Now, he has not signed on to the measure that was introduced by Fifth Ward Alderman Desmond Yancey that would extend the protections to the parts of South Shore that are in his Fifth Ward. But because of aldermanic prerogative, 
changes aren't going to be made that affect the seventh ward unless Alderman Mitchell signs on. And what about the Obama Foundation? Where do they stand? So they are completely neutral on this issue. They say if the city wants to take steps to protect longtime homeowners, they won't stand in the way. However, for years, they resisted efforts to force the Obama Foundation to sign a community benefits agreement, which would sort of voluntarily put some of these protections in places. And this isn't a new tactic, right, Heather? It's not. This is a tactic this coalition has used over and over again to signal to city officials that voters on the south side are thrilled about the Obama Presidential Center, which could open next year, finally. But they're concerned about what it will mean for low-income and working-class Chicagoans who have lived in South Shore and Woodlawn for decades. Yes, this has been in the works for quite some time. Heather Sharon, thanks so much. Thanks, Brandis. And you can read Heather's full story on our website. It's all at WTTW.com slash news. Remova Theater in Bridgeport opened late last year, and this weekend celebrations officially begin with their first major show featuring Chance the Rapper. Arts correspondent Angel Edo brings us this update on the historic landmark's development ahead of Friday's concert. For more than 35 years, the once-bustling Remova Theater on 35th and Halsted sat vacant, deteriorating in condition. But in 2017, the building was purchased for exactly $1. And with investors including Chance the Rapper, Jennifer Hudson, and Quincy Jones, together their goal is to make the Remova Theater Bridgeport's staple entertainment venue. It's a concept developers Tyler Nevis and his wife Emily have created centered around their passion for live entertainment and craft beer. Almost everything, to the extent it could be revitalized to its original uh, layout or as close to it, was, was what was asked of us and what we worked with National Parks and others on. The plaster inside, the ceilings and the paint schemes, that's the flooring and why you see carpet in the concessions area. It's the historical windows and blade sign and marquee. Anything that could be seen and documented historically, uh, we started trying to bring it back to that original posture. With 45 additional community investors, the remodeled venue offers a live music space and will include a brewery and a new edition of the Remova Grill in the coming months. How has the, the community's response been to the development of the Remova? Has there been any pushback? I wouldn't say pushback. I say we got a lot of questions. Okay. Um, this, even in its you know, rougher state, was and is loved by the neighborhood. So we'll listen and we'll try and understand what their concerns are and what they're really rooted in. And then we'll explain what we're doing to hopefully address those or if they're new concerns that we haven't heard before, we'll take note and then we'll follow up. We don't do what we say we're gonna. One of the theater's investors, Chance the Rapper, is set to play one of the venue's first shows in a concert for all ages. How are we feeling about the show on Friday? Chance is going to have this first all-ages show. That actually is the first time in a while that he's had an, an all-ages show, That's I think. probably right. We built this for everybody. To have an all-ages show was something Kyle, our director of programming, was adamant about, is we need to open this place up to people of all ages, all backgrounds, all experiences. We might have some fireworks action in here. Um, you know, we've gotten some support uh, with like SFX and some approvals that his team got. Um, there's probably going to be quite a large you know, video wall. Uh, I've also seen some of his uh, you know, rehearsal tapes and things. It's in, 
it's gonna be it's gonna be exciting. Long term, what do we want? We want to be an extension of this community, uh, and that's the South Side, Bronzeville, Canaryville, obviously Bridgeport. Get folks up from Hyde Park, really create a, a connection point for the amazing history that Chicago has. Um, but also the creator community. For Chicago Tonight Black Voices, I'm Angel Ito. The theater also includes a restored Remova grill and a new brewery, both scheduled to open this March. Up next, we dip into our archive for the story behind a silent film more than 125 years old. But first, a look at the weather. It's been said, a kiss is just a kiss. But on this Valentine's Day, this next story we're bringing you is far more than that. For Black History Month, we're dipping into our archive to bring you this story about researchers who uncovered a silent film more than 125 years old. Exceptional not only because of the film's age, but also because of what it shows. We brought you this story a few years ago when the film was rediscovered. Here's another look. It's barely 30 seconds of silence. Two actors, no words, and four on-screen kisses. And these are not kind of chaste kisses. They are quite passionate kisses, and they're having a lot of fun. They're laughing. She kind of coyly shakes her head. What may seem common by today's movie standards was quite sensational when this film was made in 1898. What's more rare, the actors here are African-American. Representation of African-Americans in early cinema is, is replete with caricatures. Um, most of the time what you see are the kind of racist tropes that were very prevalent at the time. So watermelon eating contests, white people in blackface, black people in blackface, gags where that are, are predicated on dehumanizing African Americans. And this was none of that. University of Chicago Cinema and Media Studies professor Allison Nadia Field says that kind of minstrelsy in the late 1800s and early 1900s was a mainstream form of entertainment. The two performers in this film, St. Subtle and Gertie Brown, also performed in a vaudeville theater company. I want to be careful and not say that this is a film that was made as a kind of assertion of black humanity. Um, that's very much, I think, happening despite its framing. But the film was made and marketed uh, for its comedic value. So because there are African-American performers in it, it was presumed that it would be comedy. I think what's interesting is the way that their performance really refutes that framing regardless of the way it was marketed. This film was marketed and sold through Sears and Roebuck catalogs by silent filmmaker William Selig. It was shot at his studios in downtown Chicago at 43 Peck Court, what is now East 8th Street between State and Wabash. Figuring all of this out, as well as the names of the actors, took some heavy detective work on the part of Field and a colleague at the University of Southern California who discovered the old nitrate film. It's rare that a film that's a nitrate film from this period survives at all. Over 90% of films from the silent era, from the early silent era, are lost. And so the fact that it survives and is in such good shape was already remarkable. Field noticed perforated holes in the film itself and linked it to Selig's old polyscope camera, a knockoff of the French Lumiere cinematograph. So the polyscope films 
look like Lumiere films, but they are Selig. More research into Selig's filmmaking and marketing led Field to discover the film's name, Something Good, Negro Kiss. Upon hearing of this discovery, Hollywood filmmaker Barry Jenkins, maker of critical hits like Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk, tweeted, quote, I, words fail me, with a black heart emoji for black love. Actress Viola Davis shared the video on Instagram saying, quote, such a beautiful reminder of why we do what we do. These 30 seconds are the entire film, not just a clip. Films at the time were all short, shown in a lineup with several others typically depicting blacks in racist, stereotypical performances. We really can't underestimate the power of just the representation of black humanity at this time. This is a time when American cinema was very hostile to African Americans. It was not a hospitable place for black people. And, and so just to have this, this brief 30 seconds of natural joy is really quite remarkable. And the fact that it survives over 100 years later is such a gift to us. Whether or not this film tried to, Field believes the two in it, St. Subtle and Gertie Brown, made a powerful statement without saying a word. The film, Something Good Negro Kiss, has been added to the Library of Congress's National Film Registry for its enduring importance to American culture. And that's our show for tonight. Be sure to check out our website, WTTW.com slash news, for the very latest from WTTW News. And join us tomorrow night at 5.30 and 10 for Chicago Tonight Latino Voices. Early voting kicks off in Chicago. What you should know ahead of casting your ballot. And the monarch butterfly population is at a near record low. What Chicagoans can do to help. And we leave you tonight with animals at Brookfield Zoo enjoying some sweet treats. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Now, for all of us here at Chicago Tonight Black Voices, I'm Brandis Friedman. Stay healthy and safe, and have a good night. Closed captioning is made possible by Robert A. Clifford and Clifford Law Offices, a personal injury law firm committed to giving back to the community through law and philanthropy.